Hello, welcome to Seen Them Given, the show that looks at the laws of the game and the referees who enforce them. This week, we're going to look at how a VAR review has managed to turn a good decision into a bad one, dangerous challenges and how to define them, plus could referees be better positioned at corners? We'll get into that a little bit later. I'm Mike McCarthy, broadcaster and football journalist, wondering if I have a chance of becoming the next Watford manager, seeing as everyone else has had a go. With me, a man who's managed Premier League referees as head as the PGMOL at former FIFA referee Keith Hackett. Keith, do you fancy the Watford job? Uh, not really. Um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind the money, um, but it, but it's almost like a vacation, isn't it? You know that if you if you if you've gone past two weeks, then you've succeeded. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I heard someone saying you should measure Watford managers in dog years to kind of make it a little bit more manageable. Yeah, I. You're not going to affect change in such a short period of time, and yet no. you have to live with it with the scenario of giving the manager manager a chance of trying to sort out what effectively is a mess, um, re-energise the players. Um, I suppose at the end of the day, there's there's always going to be a, a load of managers out of work looking for a job. So they know that the market's there for them to um, to get another manager. Yeah, I'm sure, it, I'm sure it won't be long until that vacancy is filled. It may have already been filled by the time we've uh, finished recording. Who knows, Keith? This may be dated yeah. already. Um, loads of you got in touch last week after we uh, talked about pre-match chats with captains. Um, wanted to read you this email from from John Keith, yes. uh, who got in touch. He said, in the last 20 years of refereeing uh, under eights through to men's semi-pro football in the United States, I found that the last thing anyone at a captain's conference wants is to hear a referee expounding on his expectations. The captains want to know who's kicking off from which end, even if they hear the profound words of the ref, uh, they won't interpret them accurately, and they'll certainly won't convey them to their teams either. The words invariably come back to haunt the ref, and that first decision that even marginally can be viewed as inconsistent with his idiosyncratic pronouncements. Uh, My practice is to be friendly and approachable from the time I arrive at the pitch, and at the conference, I asked them to keep their teams focused on having a safe, fair and enjoyable game. Then I toss the coin and get on with it. I find that the captains are pretty quick at figuring out my expectations from how I call the game. Uh, I love talking with and interacting with players and managers, but I'm there to serve the game, not give a lecture on it. John, thank you very much indeed for your email. Uh, how many of those thoughts would you echo, Keith? Well, I think uh, referees have to develop their own style of how they're going to manage effectively the game. Uh, at the professional level, I brought in a procedure where one hour before kickoff, the two man- the, the two managers, each team, along with their captains, come to the referee's dressing room at the exchange of team sheets. At that point, the referee can introduce himself to the captain. Uh, people like Howard Webb used to say, my name's Howard, how do you want to be addressed? Um, knowing full well that the referee and the and the the player in particular can be a conduit in regards to helping or assisting to manage a player. Yeah. So this is the this is if you like the management process, the 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 step process as we call it. You know, running alongside quiet word, that's fine. That might work. If it doesn't, the next one is more public, and that is, you know, you're going to stop the game. You're going to approach the 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 player. You're never going to say to a player, "Come here." I want you to come directly to me. Use a triangle so that if the player is facing you, he's at point A, you're at B, 
ask to join at sea by just that's saying, interesting i hadn't i hadn't realized there was a, a a set way to stand so you don't want to be head on with a player that you're you're talking to necessarily well i think that um everyone has his own style but what i'm trying to do is reduce conflict and in this situation if you say to a player come here um there's a chance that the player won't and, and therefore, you've created a problem. And, and refereeing is about avoiding problems, dealing with them when they arise. Here is a technique that we use at the top level where you can face the player, but you're then actually encouraging him to join you rather than saying, come here. I want you to come right in front of me. Let's move to another point in the triangle, which is less of a conflict. So in those scenarios... Uh, the captain can help. It can help to reduce, if you like, conflict. There's no authority in law because that's going to be the next thing. People are going to write in and say, oh, just a minute, the captain's only there to decide which which end. Fine, I, I agree with that. But this is how you can actually help in the assistance of refereeing and managing the, the, the game. I think to some degree there is there is... You know, some credibility in what has just been said, i.e., you know, I'm just going to be there, I'm not going to preempt anything, fine. But you're going to be faced, if you've done your own work with teams and environments that could create a problem, get in first. Don't, um, don't threaten. Uh, you know, I've said this before if you've got a problem, don't say to the player, next time you're going to get a yellow card. Just say and ask and say you want an improvement in their behaviour. So these are small points, but these are aids to communication, aids to control. Shall we have a look at the weekend's Premier League action then, Keith? Uh, there was, I should say, last week we were saying how good everything had been and there were yes. a few bits that we nitpicked out, but on the whole, last weekend was a very good week in the Premier League. Uh, this week, we've really had to sub down the number of decisions we're going to look at because yeah. uh, there were quite a few. Um, perhaps the biggest controversy came at Crystal Palace against Liverpool with uh, Diego Jota going down uh, under a challenge of Vicente Guaita. Uh, the penalty was not awarded by the on-field referee, who was then, after about three and a half minutes or so, having had a look at the monitor, advised to overturn that decision. Uh, for a lot of people, that was a good decision that was then turned into a poor decision, Keith. And um, I just wonder if you can help explain how that was arrived at and uh, whether there's any justification for it. Uh no, there wasn't. Uh, I think, you know, I'm going to be blunt and I'm going to upset because I want to promote referees. I want to actually help and assist. The reality is that at the top level and the elite level, they've got to be better. And uh, this was uh, an appalling piece of officiating. The referee is in a good position. He's made his decision on what he sees. VAR can assist in certain scenarios, but only if it's a clear and obvious error. And when you look at the decision, you have to say to yourself, how did VAR Craig Pawson decide that what the referee has done is a clear and obvious error? It wasn't a foul. The player was chasing the ball. He deviated slightly towards the goalkeeper. The goalkeeper was attempting to play the ball. No way was it a penalty kick. And uh, and I just 
shudder at the fact that here was a, an example of how we don't expect VAR to operate. So, firstly, the referee's got it right. He may have guessed. He may have had a bit of luck. I don't know. But I just get the view that somehow we've got to be able to allow the referee to maintain the decision-making process. And by that, I mean, if there is some doubt and the VAR says it's not a clear or it's a clear and obvious error in his view, the referee then has really got to have the courage to go to the screen and actually walk away and say, I'm happy with what I've given. And I, and I find it I find it difficult that Kevin Friend walked to the screen. And I call this almost in the mind of the referee as a walk of shame. Or someone is saying to them, You've made us, you've got this wrong. Uh, you know, that, that's what they're saying to them in your ear. You, the, the, you need to look at this because you've got it wrong. And once that's been set, it's going to be very, very difficult to kind of walk o- over and, and disagree with a colleague who's already looked at the incident several times, I guess. Yeah, and I, th- I think this is the problem. I think that, I think what we've got here is a process where there's got to be trust, there's got to be courage, there's got to be a review process. I, I'm I'm now very clear that this is happening too often, that, that despite what we say, and we try to cover the cracks by saying this, this weekend is a good weekend. I'm seeing every week incidents, to be honest, where I think VAR has come in and should stay out of the process. So I believe there now needs to be a, a complete change, i.e. are we actually looking at referees that are poor in in their performance because I'm inundated with uh, emails from overseas very critical of some of our referees' performances. There's no accountability. The point is that the accountability isn't whether you've got it right or wrong. It's discussing how you came to that decision and whether, in fact, the outcome at the end of the day, away from the field of play, is the correct one. If it isn't, then there's got to be a review process that says, how, boys, can we get this right? How can we avoid this type of error? Now, I don't think that process is happening. What we've got is we've got a remote centre at Stockley Park. Those that are not aware, this is on the outskirts of London. And we could have a referee uh, some several miles away. Yes, there's the communication link but after the end of the game there's no there appears to be no review and the reason I make that observation is that because we're getting repeat problems so how how do clubs and ultimately the Premier League is the clubs and they are the people who are paying the money for the referees ultimately how do they get what they want which is and what we all want which is better more accurate decision making uh, that is uh, more consistent and more consistent in what the game expects as well, which is something we hear an awful lot, Keith, because uh, ultimately, if something has to change within the organisation, then that's going to be forced by the Premier League clubs, isn't it? Well, it's not as simple as that, Mike, because the PGMOL is a, is a, a separate company, um, and on, of which the funders, if you like, are the Premier League, the Football League, and the Football Association, and they are directors, if you like, 
representative directors on the board of the PGMOL. Mm. So even if the Premier League say, the guy's got to go, or these are the changes we want, right? The authority of that has to go through the board of the PGMOL, where it has to be agreed with the other parties, the Football League and the Premier League and, and the FA. So it's not as easy uh, to make that particular change. What you have to do is influence. So I'm, I'm clear now. I think that we've worked with teams of match officials that have worked in the past. Referee working with the same assistant referees, building up a team ethic, discussing post-match, their performances, building almost a sixth sense and a relationship. Out of that bubble, if you like, is the VAR that's miles away, completely divorced from either the game itself, other than looking through the screens of the TV. I think that we need to close Stockley Park. We need to be that radical. We need to bring the VAR operation into the ground itself or on the broadcasting van. Mm. Before the game, the referee and the VAR meets, they have a discussion, they, they feel the temperature of the ground, the atmosphere, the, the playing surface, they walk on it. And then at the end of the game, more importantly, is they come together. And before they depart for home or to the hotel, they actually have a discussion and they have a review process. At this moment in time, it seems that we're springboarding in terms of uh, law application. They seem to be struggling as to what's a foul, what's not a foul. Mm. I mean, we saw that in the uh, the Leeds Newcastle game as well. A controversial moment when, well, Newcastle certainly felt they should have had a penalty. St. Maximan, I don't want to dwell too much on this one because we could again spend an awful lot of time on every single decision we've seen this weekend. That's Keith, a penalty. Yeah. Not, not. I mean, it's, it's a penalty. They didn't give it. It wasn't even reviewed. You know, that's exactly what VAR's for. <laughs> Let's get into the more interesting points of law then, the ones where maybe edge cases that we saw this weekend. Um, one of the most interesting ones was in the uh, Chelsea Spurs game. Harry Kane looked like he'd given Spurs the lead, but it was called back and Kane had been uh, maybe a bit cute, little arm in the back of Thiago Silva. Was it enough to see him go down as Thiago Silva sold the contact a bit there. There's an awful lot to discuss in this yes. very split-second moment, Keith. Ultimately, it was called as a foul, but what did you make of it? Well, I think, first of all, what we have to understand is that, <clears throat> as a group of referees, we've seen over, not just this year, but several years now, uh, an inconsistent approach with regard to holding, pushing, pulling inside the penalty area, Game to game, uh, where we see incidents which are not punished. And then when we see one, we all go, wow, that's different. And there's a surprise on the look of, of players when an, a penalty kick is awarded. To the young referees, I want to make a, a, an observation, a learning point, if you like. One of the ways in which to detect a push is that the arm is bent and straightens. That's the action of a push. And you see that the arm is bent and then goes into a straight position. Viewers on our YouTube channel are getting a great look at that now, Keith. Well, what we have is a situation where, with Harry Kane, he, he was running forward and his arm was out. 
and maybe the player was slowing down. And here, I'm going with the referee. I'm saying, okay, this is a judgment call. He's in a good position, which he was. Um, and then there, it, instantly there's a review and the, and the, the goal is, is called out. I think that was a very difficult call to make and therefore I'm going with the referee. I'm trying to say, look, okay, it wasn't that big push, but there was contact. The arm did come out. Footballers have got to learn to play with the feet other than the goalkeeper. So, okay, I'll support the referee with that decision and that'll upset a few. But that's how I saw it. And mm. I'm thinking, okay, but... Uh, the all the all aspect of challenges, Mike, um, is one that causes a lot of confusion amongst spectators. I want to I want to clarify to some degree by by almost actually going to law because, in a way, when when we're looking at the challenge, a foul challenge, and the outcome, there are three levels. There's a careless challenge. This is when a player shows a lack of attention or consideration when making a challenge or acts without precaution. So it's careless. It's a foul. can be a penalty kick in that situation. Then there's reckless. And, of course, you can be reckless without contact. Think of cars. Two cars. You can be accused of driving in a reckless manner without crashing your car. Hmm. This is no different. So reckless is when a player acts with disregard to, to the danger or consequences for an opponent. And in that situation, he gets a yellow card. And then we've got where I think the referees have not interpreted well in some instances this weekend. And that is when there's excessive force and this is when a player exceeds the necessary use of force and endangers the safety of an opponent. And in one particular game, I'm trying to remember it, there was this uh, high foot that came in. The player was moving who made the foul challenge and then raked it down his opponent. Ah, now this is the Armstrong challenge in the Southampton game on Laporte, I think you're referring yes. to this weekend. So, and we saw the uh, pitch actually that Amrik Laporte put on his social media afterwards with the, uh, well, uh, almost a gash on his thigh where the uh, the studs had made contact yeah. uh, with him. Uh, and that was looked at by VAR, but it wasn't uh, made a red card. It was uh, a yellow on the field of play. Uh, it was felt like there wasn't enough force, I think, was the reason that was given uh, in the end in, in the challenge. And is that legitimate in your view, a way of explaining that it being a yellow rather than a red, given what you just said there? I think that um, what, we can, what we have to understand, Mike, is that you can have a player who stood still and still rakes down his opponent and has endangered his opponent. I think this is a judgment call. I think that, mm. look, the player who has made the challenge is moving forward and the boot rakes down. It's, this is not an accident. Yeah. So for me, the very nature of bringing your, your boot down against your opponent is in fact excessive. You know, and I think that we're looking at forward movement. We're seeing that rate down. I think the dilemma that we face here, which VAR are facing, is that one, they don't want to re referee the game. 
I don't think they understand where the bar is in terms of these types of incidents. It's very easy. I've been in this position where you discuss with the referees and you let the group of referees find the level at which they agree as a group of referees by showing video after video of this type of incident and saying, right, okay, guys, take a look at this incident. If you see this one as VARs, are you going to in, are you going to come in? Are we going to agree not to come in, or are we going to agree to come in? Now you need leadership in that debate. You need leadership that says, you know, as the boss, guys, I'm not allowing you to set the bar that low. I want it raising, and then you get a consensus. But you get that consensus that leads towards consistency. Um, and you do that over a period of time. You, you don't just do it by looking at one decision. You're looking at several hmm. that, that come into play. Would you and include the, the Doherty on, uh, on SAR challenge then in that sort of discussion? In a, how, how similar did you feel that was in terms of uh, you know a player being a bit late, uh, leaving a mark on their opponent? In this case, it was Doherty on, on the ankle of SAR, I think, more than anything else in, in that particular challenge in the Chelsea Spurs game. Yeah, I I think that was uh, uh, more difficult to judge because it was lower down. It, it um, that doesn't mean to say it wasn't at the knee. There, there appeared to be a genuine attempt to play the ball. Mm. Yes, it was contact, and therefore this is where reckless comes into view. It was a reckless challenge rather than one that endangered the safety of an opponent. But you know these. These are judgments by referees that you expect referees at the very elite level to judge more accurately than they are doing at the moment. And uh, and I think that there isn't the consistency that you'd expect from your top referees. And this is where I think it, it causes a great deal of debate, you know, where fans will say, well, our, our player got a red, but in the, another game, the player got a yellow, you know, and a couple of weeks ago, this player got a yellow when our players got a red. So they're able now with, with you know, they save a lot of information on their on their mobiles, etc. Therefore, I think they can throw these things up. And there's just got to be a genuine understanding of the law. And I've read that out. Careless, reckless and excessive force. Serious foul play at the same comes into, into operation. And you make those judgment calls. Can we take a look at an incident in the uh, Women's Super League, Keith, from this weekend? Uh, Manchester City taking on Arsenal in the game late on Sunday evening. A a point of law raised, which I think some of us were just scratching our heads and making sure that we actually understood the law correctly. I think I learned something this weekend. Um, is if you haven't seen the incident, uh, have a look in the show notes. There is a video uh, that you can have a look at. But uh, essentially what has happened is Manchester City have the ball uh, just about on the edge of their own third. It's played forward, but hits the referee and then rebounds essentially to the left wing where Manchester City spring an attack down the left and it leads to the opening goal of the game. Arsenal very upset. They think the ball as it's hit the referee, means the game should be stopped, but it wasn't, and the goal stood. So um, what's the law actually say in this situation, Keith, and has the referee got this right? I think that you shouldn't be clever in these scenarios. Uh, I think this one impacted on the game negatively. Uh, so it's pretty simple for me, and that is, look, the ball struck you. Just, just go safe refereeing. 
stop the game, don't be clever, give the bounce up. You give the bounce up back to the team that last played it, so they would have retained possession and the game restarts. But it's a risk that, in a sense, um, blew up against against the referee. It, it didn't work for the referee. And, mm-hmm. and these are the things where you try and avoid this by not being clever, but by, by being astute. Um, look, I think it's... I think in the women's game it's it's quite difficult because they haven't had, if you like, the, the the women referees generally the the long period of um, learning the game, refereeing to various time time zones. It's been a fairly quick acceleration, introduction of the professional game, their acceleration as careers. You know, sometimes. That experience level is jumped over. They don't have it. Mm. I that, guess there's an immediate level of scrutiny that perhaps wouldn't be on referees of a similar experience level in in the men's game. Essentially, is that, I, is, that, is, that, is that was that fair? I think that explains it far better than the the sort of area that I'm trying to cover, Mike. I think you're absolutely spot on. That's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, that they're under enormous scrutiny as they themselves are developing their career. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because the law talks about uh, the, the the play being stopped if the let's say, for example, the ball changes possession in terms of the teams in, in possession. Uh, but it also talks about the referee uh, if the ball strikes them, it then leads to a promising attack. And with the ball in the middle third, there's clearly an interpretation that's gone on there uh, to to say, well, well, you know, the ball's in the middle third. It's a bit early to say whether an attack is promising or not, and therefore I think that's probably what's gone through the referee's mind in terms of allowing play to continue. And I get what you're saying about, well, just don't try and be clever about it, just just blow the whistle and everything would have been fine. But is there a need maybe to clarify the law to make sure that that's not an interpretation that could be made in the future? Yeah, I think that we saw at the beginning of the season a very clear interpretation by referees, and that is when they got hit, they gave a drop ball immediately. They, they, you know, don't take that view in the initial stages until players are more aware of of the law itself and how it should be interpreted. Clearly, I think that there is some ambiguity in the law and and it's and how it's written, but it's not the only law that it has that particular problem because it is mm. it is a bit down to interpretation, and it's only when you actually see an incident. This is how you evolve. You you learn from it, and you say, "Okay, we'll accept that, or we won't." And uh, and this relatively new law has has bounced back on someone, and then the debate takes place. I wanted to ask about refereeing positions at corners. Uh, this came from an email. Hello at seenthemgiven.co.uk is where you can get in touch with the show, and uh, this is uh, from Doug, who says, "Hi to Keith from sunny Brisbane. So uh, love the show." Thank you very much, uh, Doug. Uh, just a quick correction about the Brighton game. We mentioned it last week. Uh, Jared Gillett was in bed. Uh, Robert yeah, Jones he was. was the referee. Uh, our apologies to Jared Gillett and Robert yeah, Jones for that absolutely. error. So glad to correct that. Uh, he says, I feel that some refs are relying on VAR too much and the penalty was a case in points. Uh, this should have been seen uh, by Robert Jones in real time. Could it be that the corner kick recommended position is incorrect. Yes, it gives a wide view, but it is too far away from the critical area and refs seem to be too static. For the unfit, it gives a 20-yard head start for a long clearance, but 
I think there's a discussion to be had. All right, well, let's let's get into this then, Keith. Where ideally should a referee be at a corner, and should they mix it up from time to time? Well, I think that it, I think that the key word here is static. The referee at a corner kick, the ball is moving, players are moving, and he has to be or she has to be moving. So I don't think in this scenario that we can encourage a referee to actually be in a specific position. And therefore, you're moving. Okay, I think the, impo- the, the one thing I always say to referees is at a corner kick, never stand in the D. Right. Why, uh, why not? Because, because that invariably, if the ball comes in, it's then cleared. It's invariably, for some unknown reason, cleared through the D. And if you get hit with a ball, there's a massive amount of embarrassment that occurs. Yeah. So for me, I think that the the other thing also that I'd recommend to referees is this. I've said it, I think, before, and that is it's easy to be looking at the ball at the corner where it's positioned and then blow the whistle and then watch the ball coming into the penalty area. And what you do is miss an awful lot. Mm. Therefore, listen to the noise of the, the kick and keep your eye on the action. So for me, I used to stand uh, three, four yards in from the corner of the penalty area, looking in, knowing that the ball's going to come over the left shoulder, that area, um, and then move and be prepared to move either out to get an, an angle at the back post or, or in. But I, I see some referees going like centre of the penalty area, some never penetrating the penalty area in that situation. You don't at a corner kick, by the way, because you could get it in that scenario. So I think there is no one great position other than that, that area, in my opinion, left of the penalty area, that intersection moving in towards the D, and then being prepared to move left or right to get your viewing angle. And is there I, an I, argument as well for, for changing up your position during the game as well, just to make sure you're uh, avoiding any blind spots that you know players might try to exploit? Is there well, anything in that? Well, I mean, <laughs> the main thing about a referee is to see. The process of, of we said before about uh, decision-making is to see, recognise, think and act. And invariably, when you examine errors, it's because they've not seen it. So in that situation, the movement uh, of, to gain the right viewing angle is such an important facet of refereeing. This is why you know, people like Jared Gillett raced to the very top step level in, in Australia and he's now working his way through the system now. And that, that is because he's a fit referee, he's mobile, and he's got a good reading of the game, gets into good positions. Whereas there's some referees, you know, I mean, I've, I've been critical this weekend of, of a referee called Chris Cavanagh. When he first came onto the list, I thought, wow, he's a breath of fresh air. He is a very good decision maker. But the problem is he doesn't put in the physical effort. You know, he's like one or two referees. They stop 10 yards short of the penalty area. They don't follow the run through. And as a result, they get into the realms of guessing rather than seeing and making the correct decision. And and that's that's a bit of lazy refereeing. And this, if you like, it gets 
gets back to that initial subject of, of referees and VAR. Because what, what I think is happening at the moment is VAR is creating a group of lazy referees who have got this mindset that says it doesn't matter because if it's a major error, VAR is going to come in. And you've got VAR, that same referee who's refereed like Craig Pawson did on a Friday, now sat in front of the screen a day later or 48 hours later, his VAR and thinking, well, he must have seen that. Oh, he hasn't. Can't be saying that's a penalty kick or not a penalty. I'm going to come in. And I, I think this is where teamwork, debate, discussion, and, and this whole subject, this is basic refereeing positioning. But, but here is a question being asked and an observation being made by someone that's asked the question. He's already understands that he can't be static he already understands that he's got to get a view and he already believes that if he's not moving, right, or if he remains static, he's going to get caught and miss something. So good on him. And I think I'm not raising this issue. He is, and he's answered and highlighted to other referees where he is coming from. So he's, he's got a really good, good point that he's made. Doug, thanks very much indeed for getting in touch with the show. Uh, last one we're going to do today comes from Matt. It says, uh, hi, guys. Uh, I've only just started back refereeing in local grassroots football. Welcome back, Matt. And uh, yeah. I've found the use of the sin bin a very good tool in the referee's armory if used properly and would certainly like to see it used more frequently in the future for some of the younger age groups, which seem to get away with it a lot just because of their age. Uh, interesting that one, Matt. Um, I mean, Keith, I know you you are very much an advocate of referees using the tools that they have um, to, uh, and you've spoken about this before, and, and the sim bin very much being one of them. Yeah, I think that um, I sometimes listen to Simon Hall, who's a guest on occasions, and he referees at grassroots level every weekend, midweek. He referees a ton of matches in, the, in a season, and um, he, he often says that, you know, refereeing nines, eights, year olds is a challenge and he's an, a very experienced referee so for younger referees coming through it is a challenge you know I've, I've had a com- communication uh, today with a referee who is, is relatively comfortable refereeing children's if you like football but now wants to aspire to referee men's games but he's got a little bit of a fear and I've said look don't be fearful of that you you have a greater knowledge of the laws of the game than the players invariably, so be comfortable in that. Um, yeah, I think I think the sin bin is a is a, a tool that's not been used enough. I think the the whole discussion. I mean, I, I'll be on radio tomorrow uh, talking about one county FA that's expressed great concern about the number of referees that they're losing through abuse, mm. um, and I, you know. I've looked more recently at punishments being handed out by the county FAs. And this weekend I saw where a referee being suspended, signed die for five years, can't play for five years. Now, that's yeah. that in itself is a bit tragic, really, that a player who's enjoyed the game for a moment in time has lost his control or he's done that on more than one occasion. But this is the punishment that can be the outcome of a misconduct on the field of play um 
I, I think the I think that refereeing now is more difficult than it's ever been. You know, we we analyse performance at the elite level. They've gone through all the learning points. They they are paid professionals. We expect high levels of performance, but I think at grassroots level and particularly parents, they expect too much. They they go in, uh, they're unforgiving of the referee. There's there's threats that go towards referees at times, physical threats, where I think the environment of refereeing is much more difficult than it than it should be. So I think it, it's all of us that have a responsibility to say, look, we've got to stop these things. In the same way that at the senior game this weekend, I'm getting increasingly concerned, and we've mentioned it before about objects being thrown. Yeah, well, it's good you know? to hear the FA investigating that because there was, uh, well, all sorts of incidents this weekend, which <laughs> I guess we don't really have time to go into, yeah. but bottles being thrown, lighters in the Chelsea game, fans getting onto the pitch at Southampton as well, which is uh, really not what you want to see. No. Um, but that's about as far as we go this week, Keith. But thank you to Matt for your email, uh, to Doug for getting in touch, and for everyone else who's uh, corresponded with the show uh, this week as well. If you do want to get in touch, hello at seenthemgiven.co.uk is our email address. You can follow Keith on Twitter at HackitRep, or you can uh, see uh, us on Twitter at scene underscore them underscore given. And if you uh, like the show, give us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, and it'll help other people uh, discover the program too. Keith, as always, thanks very much indeed for your company. Pleasure, Mike. We will see you next time. <laughs>